Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Ian Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we're recording a little bit later this week. I've been traveling, um, but hopefully uh, what we have to talk about is still good. Uh, we're going to do what we often do for Apple events, but this time for Google, in that Google had a big event this week at which they announced new hardware in several categories, as well as gave an update on their AI efforts and the Google Assistant. And so that's what we're going to spend the whole episode talking about today. So we'll dispense with our usual format and just spend the whole time talking about that. Um, we're going to kick off by talking about some of the AI stuff. Basically, we're going to take the order in the event that it happened. So we'll, we'll start off with some of the comments at the beginning by Sundar Pichai about artificial intelligence and that kind of thing, and specifically uh, the Google Assistant, which was a major focus of all of that. What, what was your take on that part of the presentation? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's really cool. I, I still feel like all this AI stuff has, from you know, most most of what most companies are announcing in AI, I feel like it's still sort of out in the future more than it is like current today. I mean, it also, a lot of it just still feels like, I mean, I, I, I realize it's unfair to just compare it to Siri, but uh, it just feels like a slightly maturing kind of Siri across the board from all these companies and all the different things that can be done. So, I, I mean... I don't know. None of it feels groundbreaking yet, but it feels like we're on the cusp of some groundbreaking cool things. And I'm not exactly sure what the missing components are to, to get it over into the, this is going to change my life in dramatic ways. But I feel like this is true across the board, Apple included. I, I feel like, you know, this is fun and this is interesting, um, but, uh, but I don't think we're yet to the point where it's life-changing, even though you read a lot of the pundits today, they're talking about, you know, that that essentially AI and voice is the future interface. In fact, I think somebody, I wish I remember who I saw, said this on Twitter, but it was essentially the idea that, oh, maybe it was you. Somebody said uh, that in the future there won't be apps. It'll just be information and algorithms, right? Yeah, and no, that, yeah, that, that was not me as such, but I remember reading that somewhere too or hearing that somewhere. Yeah, and I wish I remember who said that. And, yeah. and I thought, man, that is... That is a really ambitious vision of the future, right? That you just mm. feed you just feed information into whatever device it is you're using, or the, the information right. the device collects information on its own, and then you don't need apps to do stuff anymore because it just kind of figures it all out. We're right. so far away from that still. It, is, it feels like yeah, that. yeah, and I think this this kind of taps into something that I wrote about for Tech Pinions this week, but and and partly off the back of the Google event, which is. With all this AI stuff, there's a real danger that AI and machine learning itself becomes the story, and what it really should be is all the good stuff that comes out of those efforts right. from a product perspective. Um, and so, you know, we've really seen this ramp up over the last year or two in these big tech companies, whether it's Microsoft or Google or Apple or whoever, uh, Facebook, um, talking about their AI technology and all the work that they're doing and so on, and to frequently we see them kind of stop there to some extent or at least make the focus that whereas the focus really should be products and services and the features that are enabled by all that and then oh by the way this is all from our ai efforts and machine learning and the problem with those kind of vision things that you were just talking about is it's all very well to have a vision but if that's your promise and then today your product does some tiny subset of that that's very disappointing in comparison that's obviously not a good message either and so um, you know, the focus really needs to be on showing what products and service features you really have today that come out of the AI. Fine, talk about all the investment you're making in AI, talk about some of the stuff that's coming in future. But unless you're showing concrete things that actually help people 
in products and services that are shipping today, uh, it's, it's, it feels a lot more like hype than reality, and that's always a dangerous thing to do. So um, I, that's a key thing to, to bear in mind here. Um, you know, certainly the stuff is advancing today, you know, whether it's these digital assistants or whether it's other forms of AI like um, photo recognition or, or things like that. You know, these things really are rolling out today. They're becoming increasingly good. Uh, and it's certainly one of the most interesting competitive dynamics to look at how this stuff evolves across devices. And we've obviously just seen um, this Viv personal assistant technology, which was built by the people that previously built Siri, uh, acquired by Samsung this week. And that's interesting as part of this overall picture, too. But it kind of highlights the fact that these digital assistants basically have to be embedded in either the operating system or the device in order to be really useful. Because you need integration. You need to be able to summon them from anywhere in the app, uh, anywhere on the device. You need to be able to ideally summon them even when the device is locked through either voice or through a hardware button or something like that. Uh, Third-party apps just aren't going to cut it because you're not going to have to unlock your device and then open an app to get that functionality. Um, and so with Viv, that was always a challenge for me. It was like, this is all very well, but how is this going to be embedded into something? And so an acquisition, especially by a company that didn't yet have this technology, like Samsung, always seemed the most likely outcome for them. And sure enough, that's what's happened. But it just highlights the fact that this stuff does have to be embedded, which makes it very hard for something like, say, the Google Assistant to really do well on third-party devices because it's never going to have that kind of first-party status. It's never going to be summonable from the lock screen. Um, and that's going to put it at an inherent disadvantage versus Siri. And, and, you know, Google's got Android devices, and we'll talk later about to what extent Google Assistant is even going to be on Android devices in the near term. But somebody like Microsoft, who has Cortana, which has, you know, hundreds of millions of users on Windows 10, is basically absent in mobile, and it's going to be very hard for that to change. So it's another interesting dynamic around all this. It'll be interesting to see. I completely agree about how this has to be baked into to the hardware devices that people are using. It'll be interesting to see how many people are using a collection of different AIs. You know, yeah. in, in the way they do things, just based on device. So somebody might have like a Windows laptop. They might have an iPad, and they might have a Pixel phone. I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are sort of platform agnostic in the way that they make their purchasing decisions that way. Yeah. Because they don't invest a lot of money in apps. They just sort of, you know, they, they got a good deal on Black Friday on a device. It'd be interesting to see how many people just sort of use whatever, you know, assistant, you know, artificial assistant is in their device at the time and are perfectly happy with that. Yeah, and that's going to be the big question too. And this is part of where uh, Google's strategy around its assistant in particular is interesting because they're clearly trying to make it something that's joined up between devices. So, you know, the two big hardware devices they announced this week were Home and Pixel, both of which have assistant as a major sort of software feature. Um, You know, Home is really sort of the physical embodiment of the assistant and Pixel has it as one of its few differentiators against other Android phones. And we'll talk about both of those things some more. But, you know... At the moment, you've got Amazon Echo out there as a device who, which is also sort of the physical embodiment of an assistant, even more so because the assistant doesn't really exist anywhere else. And that's Amazon's single biggest challenge with Echo is the functionality only exists there. So it's useless to you. As soon as you get out of the home, it's gone. Um, and, uh, you know, they have to figure out how to get around that. And not having the first party position in smartphones is a real handicap for them. And they have to figure out how they're going to get around that. You know, for Google... They have the opposite uh, situation where they have the ubiquitous device already 
and now they're trying to get into a new category in the home. And so we'll, we'll talk about that a bit more later. But it's interesting to see the different starting points. I bet there are people who, to your point, are using, say, Echo today at home and then using Siri or something else as they're kind of out and about. And I think Google's vision is you could be able to use the assistant both at home and while you're out and about, and it can be kind of a best-in-class experience in both places. Um, and so that's kind of the story that they're telling. I think um, I, I think I think the thing about Amazon's approach, though, is it sort of makes the case that a lot of what these you know virtual assistants are going to be doing in the future is is going to be the same across all the different platforms or or assistants, and it won't matter. I mean, you know, I don't think Amazon realistically thinks anymore that it's going to have much of a place in the smartphone world, and maybe they've got something. You know, coming down the pipe that we don't know about where they have a lot more confidence. But their efforts with the Fire Phone kind of illustrate that they tried and it didn't work. And, and it's so it seems like, you know, I mean, a lot of what these, a lot of what these assistants do is going to be the same. You know, hey, you know, what's the weather today? Or how's traffic on the way to work? I mean, those sorts mm-hmm. of questions are, are coming, are, are, are ubiquitous enough across all the different virtual assistants that there's, not much differentiation there. In fact, the, the the interesting thing that's differentiating them, and this is going to be more of a bother for customers than it is a benefit, is the services they tie into, right? So if I ask if I ask you know an Alexa to play some music, it's going to want to pull it from my Amazon Prime you know account, being able to listen to whatever they've got streaming wise. And if I do it on my iPhone, it's going to want to pull it from Apple Music. If I do it on uh, on the Pixel phone, it's going to want to pull the song from Google Play, and and the problem with all of that obviously is I have to actually be a subscriber for all of these different services to be able to have access to one song if I'm on all these different platforms, and so the services that it tie, that all these can tie into are where there's going to be more differentiation, but it may be an annoyance more than anything because if I have to you know pay a monthly subscription for all these different services just because you know each of these virtual assistants is trying to push me onto the you know the music subscription service for example that that Google and Apple and, and Amazon are trying to get me to sign up for yeah it's it, an I think interesting that becomes thing a bother at that point yeah well, it's an interesting thing where Amazon and Google have different incentives too I mean Amazon yeah. not having well well developed music services for example or having existing kind of knowledge graph or search engine is much more reliant on third parties and therefore has an incentive to be as open as possible. Google obviously is doing this largely because it's already very good at this stuff. It has a music service, it has YouTube, it has obviously Google.com and all the stuff that's behind that from a knowledge base perspective. Um, and so they have you know, some partnerships lined up already as part of the launch, including Spotify and so on, um, and Pandora and others. Um, but you know, their main focus is going to be plugging you into Google services in a new way. And so the third party stuff is going to come later and slower. Um, You know, they're going to have an SDK and everything else later on. But, um, you know, it's it's something that's far less important for them, arguably. And so it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I'd argue Apple's a lot more like Google in that respect as well. So were they to get into this space, they'd also probably have that different approach. Um, Let's, in the interest of time, move on to talking about the hardware, um, starting with a Pixel. Um, so it's obviously an interesting development, something that was rumored for a long time ahead of time. And as is customary with these things, you see all the hardware renders and everything else, but you don't get any of the rationale. And so one of the interesting things 
uh, I was watching for at the Google event was the explanation for why Google is doing this stuff. Uh, you know, why it's getting into hardware in a category where it's traditionally only done the operating system, why it's um, uh, competing ultimately with its OEMs, why the shift from the Nexus to the Pixel uh, strategy, which has some subtle stuff around, you know, the, the design and the manufacturing process and so on. So uh, the interesting thing was we didn't get a lot of explanation. You know, if I think of the parallel event, which is uh, Microsoft building the Surface, um, you know, they spent a good amount of time justifying that decision and especially explaining why this was going to be okay for OEMs and so on and talked about it in terms of, you know, moving OEMs in a new direction, kind of showing them what can be done and so on. There was none of that from Google. There was a little bit of it in some of the interviews and so on that they did uh, with Bloomberg and The Verge and other publications. But there was nothing during the event itself, which was interesting um, in and of itself. But, you know, the hardware is interesting. It, it certainly borrows heavily from existing concepts, shall we say. Um, you know, the design, especially on the back, is distinct. But from the front, it looks very much like an iPhone. Certainly a lot of the design elements uh, are very iPhone-like, including antenna lines, which even seem more or less unnecessary given the glass back on the device. But um, lots of design cues, but at the same time some differences, the sort of wedge-shaped sort of square bezels and so on. Um, but the whole approach, obviously, is very iPhone-like in that, you know, you're tying hardware and software together, and this is kind of, um, you know... It, in the past, Microsoft and Google have sort of resisted this notion that Apple and, to some extent, BlackBerry and other companies have pursued that, you know, you need to make hardware and software together and tightly integrate them to be really good in this space. You know, both Microsoft and Google have now capitulated in at least part of their business to that concept, you know, kind of given up on the idea that you can be top-notch by just doing the operating system or just doing hardware um, for different reasons, I would argue. Um, but it's been interesting to see that shift. Aaron, what was your take on the Pixel phone? Well, I agree with you that the recipe is hardware and software baked together. And I think that's one of the struggles that Android manufacturers have had from the start. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's funny, Sam, all of Samsung's efforts over the years, for example, trying to differentiate their, their um, version of Android, but feeling tied to Google because Google's trying to rein them in. But Samsung, said, you know, recognizes, hey, we got to make this thing distinctive from a software perspective, not just a hardware perspective. I, I think it's just obvious that the su successful recipe when it comes to smartphones is is a is you know a marriage of hardware and software that 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 uh, tightly integrates them and makes sense. I, it is interesting to me that Google didn't you know make more of a sort of a business case and also that they didn't try to make their OEMs feel a little bit better <laughs> about the direction right. they're headed. But but at the same time, it doesn't surprise me because it's not like they've had... I mean, Microsoft came at the surface with a very long relationship of trying to keep manufacturers very happy with Windows. And, right. I mean, they recognized that their business model up until recently was entirely about getting as many manufacturers as they could to put Windows on their devices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Google kind of hasn't really been in that situation with Android. I mean, Android has always been, in many cases, a hedge anyway, right? It's mm -hmm. it's about protecting itself from from losing relevance on mobile, and, uh, and and so I don't, you know, I don't see a ton of value in them. I don't think they see a ton of value in worrying too much about OEMs. I also think that they're starting to recognize that you know, the problems they've had with Android are not going to be solved unless they're making their own phone. 
um, in the sense that, uh, you know, just being able to create the unified experience, especially the software experience that they want people to have, including updates and everything. And uh, the Nexus phones were never really accomplishing that because they were, they were never truly best in class as far as phones went, and I think that always depressed their sales, and the truth was Google never really cared much anyway because they're reference devices more than anything else for the marketplace. I think, I, think, I think this strategy from Google makes a lot of sense, and it doesn't surprise me at all that they didn't really do anything to make their you know other Android manufacturers more comfortable because that just doesn't seem to be something Google cares about. And, I mean, the other thing is, is they're targeting the high end of the market with these phones. And uh, that's a much narrower space, manufacturer-wise, than, mm-hmm. than, say, you know, all of the low-end Android handsets that are spreading through the developing world. Um, yeah. They're not, you know, all those manufacturers that are hitting, you know, uh, developing markets, they're, they're not going to be worried about this at all. And so it's, it's more like, you know, Samsung and... And, and and others that are producing the high-end Android phones that have a reason to be nervous and a legitimate reason to be nervous because this is going to address one of the major pain points, which is not getting Android updates quickly. And I think that alone is going to make a lot of people pay attention to it. Mm, yeah. So there's a couple of interesting things about all this. You know, on the one hand, you've talked about the kind of integration theory and so on. If you actually look at the pixel, though, there's relatively little there that's evidence of integration, you know. Um, you know, yes, it has a nice camera, but it's possible for any other OEM to do a nice camera. Um, there are uh, there's the integration of Google Assistant, um, which is really at the service level. Frankly, it's enabled by a launcher rather than enabled by the OS itself. Um, there is you know uh, look and feel. So there are rounded icons rather than squared or rounded rectangles or anything else. Um, but other than that, it, it really is fairly pure sort of Google Android experience on uh, running on Android 7.1. And that's the interesting thing here is for all the arguments about tight integration of hardware and software, the reality is that this device is basically the same as what any OEM could build um, that had the kind of access that this team has had within Google. And in some of the interviews, it became very clear that basically there's no special access here at all. Um, that from a, an OS perspective, the Android and hardware teams have been kept separate. They're sort of firewalled from each other to some extent. And Hiroshi Lockheimer, who runs Android and Chrome, and then Rick Ostelo, who now runs hardware, basically exist in separate teams and can't talk to each other about certain things. And that's because, um, much as with the Motorola acquisition a few years ago, um, they want to avoid the sense that this internal hardware division is somehow getting special access. And so if you read some of the interviews, it becomes clear that the only special access they had was to Google services teams, uh, so maps and search and, and assistant and all the rest of it. But even there, uh, the comments were not, you know, nobody else can do this, but we're the only ones who were interested. Uh, and so we're the only ones who got access. And so um, at the end of the day, for all the argument about integration, for all that on paper this looks like, you know, the embrace of the Apple business model, for example, uh, in practical terms, there's not a lot of evidence that that's actually happened here. Um, you know, and so I absolutely think the last things that you were saying when you were talking just now are true in that this is much more about regaining control of Android and the Android experience than it is about somehow leveraging integration of hardware and software to do things better. Um, and it's interesting, you go back two years to I.O., there was a lot of stuff at the software level that Google was doing to try to reclaim 
control over Android. So they were behind the scenes. This was a time when they were really pushing OEMs to tone down the customizations and that kind of thing. And then at I.O., they announced things like Android Auto, Android TV, uh, Android One for emerging market smartphones. It's an initiative that hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, you know, lots of stuff that basically was about stripping down the customizations and leaving you with vanilla forms of Android. And none of that really took hold in a way that made a difference to the Android experience that most people have every day. And so it feels like now they're having another go this time through hardware. Um, and so they say nobody else is going to put Google services front and center, so we have to do it, and here's how we're going to do it. But we have to dress this up in language about integration and um, and we have to be careful that we don't position it as that because then that is obviously a threat to our OEMs and, and something of a slap in the face to them uh, given their focus of putting their own services first and so on. And so we're going to position this whole thing as about you know competing with the iPhone. We're going to make references to the iPhone both direct and indirect throughout our presentation. We're going to mock um, things about the iPhone like color scheme names and things like that um, and the 3.5-millimeter headphone jack and a camera bump and various other things. And uh, you know, I'm going to price it literally identically to the latest iPhones, uh, whether that makes sense or not. Um, you know, the, the whole thing was about positioning it to iPhone because I think if you actually break it down, ignore all the marketing and look at what this device is, it's very much an attempt to regain control of Android. It's very much competing with Samsung, which is Google's biggest OEM. And, uh, and that obviously couldn't be the message coming out of the event. So they dressed it up in this iPhone language um, and yet it really is much more of a threat to Samsung at the high end of the Android market. And, and, you know, I don't have the exact numbers to hand right now, but between them, Apple and Samsung basically are 90-something percent of the premium smartphone market. So there's really nobody else in this. It's Samsung on the Android side, and, and they're going to be hit pretty hard, especially given all the troubles they're having with the Note 7 and so on. So, um, you know, it, there's this interesting disconnect between what I think is effectively a smokescreen of how this thing was presented and the reality behind that, which is very different. From from a marketing perspective, though, I think the smokescreen is going to be really effective. I think there are going to be a lot of people who are excited about the idea of get, getting what they finally perceive as a high-end phone directly from Google. Yeah, And Google made a big deal for example, yesterday about how there's 24-hour customer support built into the phone. I mean, they, you know, they're trying to obviously help people understand that they are going to be a trustworthy hardware vendor. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think that's great. And, and I think over time they're going to get better. The problem that Google has right now is that if you're going to be doing this, this, you know, this integration strategy, you need to do it at the silicon level. I mean, you can't do it just with, you know, having you know, one or two neat features baked in that aren't baked into other Android phones. Like, right. like Apple's been been so distinctive because they bake it all the way into you know a secure enclave. For example, in in the in the in the iPhone hardware, so that your fingerprint is saved in a particular way that makes it useful for things like Apple Pay. And that's an example of where you know this this really deep level integration goes all the way down to transistors baked in, you know, built into a, a, a chip um, that's running the phone. Google to head that direction has a long way to go. I mean, they didn't even really make this phone. They they say that they designed it, but I think it was probably product designers, not necessarily hardware designers, who were involved because it was HTC that made it. And without a doubt, they've relied on HTC's manufacturing abilities and expertise, and and Google to get to the point where they're really truly like designing these things from the ground up, from the silicon level. Um, 
that's that's a that's a long way to go. John Kirk, right. who writes for Tech Pinions, I follow him on Twitter. He had a great insight. He basically said that that uh, Google is playing checkers in this space, whereas Apple is playing chess. And the reason that's true is because Apple is just has a much more sophisticated relationship with hardware manufacturing than Google has. You know, Apple is making. You know, when Apple works with its hardware partners, it spends a billion dollars on equipment that it that it then you know turns over to its to its manufacturers to say, we want you to use this when you make our, our phones. Um, and, and Google is not even close to that kind of a relationship. It's not to say they can't get there. And the truth is, Apple having blazed the trail, you know, Google can get that direction more quickly than I think Apple did. Because um, Apple, you know, had to sort of figure it out when nobody else had figured it out. But it is going to take a huge investment. All that said, I can totally yeah, picture no, Apple absolutely. going down that, or sorry, Google going down that road. And, and I think five years from now, we're going to see a much more advanced Android phone from Google than than probably from anybody else. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And yeah, then that's the challenge too with this integration message is like it's not just that. It, that's usually the way it's phrased, right? So the integration between software and hardware, um, but it goes a lot deeper than that. And so right now, Google's at a very superficial level here, where yes, technically the same company is making the software and issuing a design for the hardware um, and being more involved in that process. But it goes much deeper than that if you want to do it the the way that Apple does it. And if you want really to get the benefits of that integration, you do have to go that deep. And they're probably several years from getting anywhere close to that. So it'll be interesting to watch how that plays out. We talked about putting Google services front and center, but the one thing that's really unique uh, at this point, and it's a huge strategy shift actually from Google, and I don't think it's been uh, covered nearly enough, is that the Google Assistant, which is Google's big new software feature, is exclusive uh, as a standalone thing to this new phone. Um, there are no other Android phones that run it um, or can run it. And Google hasn't been clear about what the timeline is going to be for releasing it. You could theoretically download the Allo app and use that, but it's not nearly the same thing in terms of having it tightly integrated into the OS or the device, uh, as we were talking about earlier. So. Whereas Google's strategy in the past has always been about securing the broadest possible distribution for its services, because that's how it benefits, right? It gets all the data, has people to advertise to, and all the rest of it. Uh, this is the first time that Google hasn't done that and is instead basically preferring its own hardware and giving its own hardware an advantage and a differentiator through the fact that it, uh, these features are exclusive there. And so Home and Pixel are the only devices where Assistant is available, and then the Allo app is the only app where it's available. Uh, there is no way as a third-party Android vendor that you can bake Assistant in today. And, uh, you know, that's true. It's not even like it's just part of Android 7.1 and when other vendors get Android 7.1, they will get the Assistant and the launcher and everything that goes with that. Um, Those things are exclusive to the Pixel. And so that's a huge shift. And it's basically about saying we care more about selling a few million of these devices than we do about having a billion people using uh, the services, which is very different from how Google's approached this stuff in the past. That's right, and I think that actually is a signal that uh, they don't see much space for advertising revenue in the in the AI world. And I can kind of see why that's true. And maybe it's maybe they just haven't figured it out yet, and there might still be room. But you know, we're a long way away now from web browsers and going into Google and typing in a search, and then having some nicely targeted advertising show up on the web page. I mean, we're entering into a future of computing that is going to be largely non-visual, 
and if that's the case, rolling ads is like having to listen to ads on a radio, and that's absurd. You know, you can't pull up an assistant to help you with something and then have to wait for an audio ad to run before you get the answer about what the weather is today, right? And, right, yeah. And, I mean, there are other ways to target advertising, clearly, you know, you, you, you know, based on your, your the, way you, the ways you're using Google Assistant, you could, you know, maybe get certain emails, you know, you know spam or whatever, but, but, the, but advertising is going to have a much rougher go in a world of computing run by assistants. And, you know, there are really smart people at Google that are thinking years and years into the future. And this feels like a play to get Google less and less reliant on advertising because they don't see room for it in the world to come, at least not in a way that can sustain, the, you know, the, the revenues and the business model that Google's had to this point. And that's why this whole play, the whole pixel move, actually, and also, in fact, the whole made by Google move, um, you know, seems to be, you know, even in its lightest form, seems to be a hedge against advertising as a revenue model having a rough go in the computing future to come. Yeah, no, it's an interesting shift for them for sure. And, and there's definitely a hedging element, I think, in getting into hardware here, along with the other stuff that we've talked about. I think the other interesting thing is this new hardware division within Google that's kind of consolidating hardware under Rick Ostelow, who used to run a big chunk of Motorola. Um, you know, it's been something that we've talked about before, that Google has this really disjointed approach to hardware. We've got a whole bunch of different people within Google that all own bits and pieces of hardware. The branding is inconsistent. The look and feel is inconsistent. The integration between them is non-existent. Um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, disjointedness in that strategy in the past. And Rick Ostelow has really very quickly kind of pulled it together to the extent that some of these new devices that launched this week look like they were designed by the same people. The branding is consistently either Google as the headline and then sub-product or there's some sort of sub-brand like Pixel and go from there. But, um, you know, there is much clearer, much cleaner uh, sort of alignment between these different bits of hardware now. You know, things like the OnHub routers that we saw last year are gone. Um, you know, the whole Nexus brand looks like it's going to go away. You know, you're going to have Pixel, you're going to have Home, you're going to have Chromecast, and then everything else is just going to be named. So Wi-Fi, Daydream, uh, sort of brands under the Google brand. Um, and I think that's a big step forward, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But it, it's actually happened remarkably quickly that they've kind of cleaned that up. Uh, but Home is the other big uh, piece of hardware that was announced at the event, and it's worth certainly talking about that for a few minutes as well. Um, I was asked by a lot of reporters ahead of time, oh, is it too late you know, to get into this market? And, <laughs> and I said, no, don't be ridiculous. You know, Amazon's maybe sold 3 million Echo devices, and yeah. yes, they dominate the market, but there's no, literally nobody else in the market right now, and it's a market that's very much in its infancy. I think the other thing about this is there are two ways to look at the Echo and, and that market. One is to see it as a market in itself. So it's the smart home speaker market or however you want to describe that. But I think the real way to look at it is to look at Alexa, the, cap the actual assistant capability, as being part of the smart assistant market and that Echo is just one endpoint where that's available. And if you look at it in that way, then obviously Google and Apple and Microsoft are all strong competitors in that market. They just don't happen to have a home speaker yet. Um, even if you think the home speaker market's important, it's still in its infancy and there's plenty of time for somebody to get out, somebody else to get in. And Google's always seemed like one of the strongest prospects for this market just because of the knowledge base they have, because of their strength in voice recognition, 
you know, the hard part isn't building a speaker with really good microphones. You know, if the device right. is big enough, you can do far field uh, voice recognition, all the rest of it. Uh, that's not hard. The hard thing is actually uh, the natural language processing, the turning that into something that you can understand and then responding to it. And all these companies are very good at that stuff. The hardest part is that traditionally they've all done it in smartphones where the microphones are tiny and, um, you know, can't pick up your voice as well. And so it's actually the voice recognition part that's tough. Once you get a bigger device and that's dedicated to this kind of thing, it's a lot easier. So at any rate, we've now seen Google's entrance into this. We, we obviously saw it pre-announced in May. Uh, one of the interesting things from May was that it, there was a lot of talk about how it would get to know you. And that was a theme in the event this week as well. And yet, as it turns out, it's single user. Um, so uh, you can only put one Google account on this thing at a time. And so the you it gets to know is one person in the household, no matter how many people there actually are in the household. And basically, all the requests that go into the device are going to get captured in that one user account, which has huge potential for actually muddying Google's sense of who you are as a user because all these different people are going to make requests that I don't care about. And the next time I'm using my smartphone, I might get uh, Google Now cards or whatever that say, oh, we know you're interested in this you know, Daniel Tiger TV show, because that's what your kids were asking <laughs> about. Um, you know, so uh, the, this was an area where Google could have had a real strength and differentiator, and I think they've kind of messed it up. I think they've dropped the ball on that. Um, but, you know, it looks like a, a very interesting device in other ways. What was your take on the home device? Well, I like that you said about the problems with, you know, multi-user, um, you know, s sensibilities when it comes to products like this. The reality is companies have been struggling with this for a long time. I mean, Netflix for years didn't have multiple user profiles. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, your Netflix recommendations would be filled with, you know, sci-fi if you're into that. And then, like you said, you know, PBS Kids you right. know, shows. And, and it took a while for Netflix to just finally bite the bullet and say, okay, let's try this multi-user thing. Apple has the same problem with, with Apple IDs. Um, you know, it's sharing photo libraries, for example, doesn't still doesn't work well or work right mm -hmm. between Apple IDs. And, you know, they they have the whole family account thing going, but there are a lot of ways that, that still falls short from a good multi-user experience. It's frustrating that people don't, that companies haven't figured this out because there are, you know, most people live in families. And I, I don't know if it's like the Silicon Valley perspective where, right. you know, a lot of their engineers are, 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 are young single people living in the Bay Area and so they kind mm -hmm. of feel like they're the use case and they don't realize most people are in families. I have no idea what's going on with that. Right. But, but, the, but the, um, <clears throat> the home as a strategy is a fascinating thing to me because, like you're saying, it really is just, you know, it's just a speaker with a nice microphone and and yet it seems to be a pretty compelling use case for these assistants. Mm -hmm. I, I know there's a lot of skepticism floating out there about whether or not Apple actually makes one of these things themselves, but I think the Alexa has shown that people like that better than pulling their phone out of their pocket. I mean, right. most of the people who have an Alexa uh, or have a, an Echo device also have an Android or, or iPhone mm -hmm. in their pocket. Yeah. And they can pull it out and do almost the entire, you know, almost everything that Alexa can do. And yet, people seem to be really enjoying just having this dedicated thing sitting in their kitchen or their family mm -hmm. room or wherever. Yeah. And that's, it's a, it's an interesting and surprising use case to, for me anyway. It's surprising, but but 
but if but effective enough that I could picture Apple actually making one of these things, and this then becomes sort of you know sort of part of the entry fee. If you're going to be in somebody's life with a digital assistant, you have to have one of these things on offer as well. And and so I you know we'll see if that really holds up, but it wouldn't surprise me if that becomes the case. And you know sometime next year we see Apple launching one of these things. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been interesting. I mean, Apple would obviously say, well, we have Siri everywhere already. You know, it's on the iPhone, yeah. it's on the iPad, it's on the Apple Watch, it's now on the Mac, it's on the Apple TV. Um, it has different capabilities on those different devices, but it's basically more or less ubiquitous already to the extent to which you carry these devices with you wherever you go. One of the interesting things about the Echo is how heavily used it is by kids. Um, you know, and, and, you know, one of the capabilities that the Echo has is telling jokes, which is, you know, we had an Echo in our house for about a month just while I was trying it out. And uh, that was the single most used feature. <laughs> I'm never going to pay $180 just to have my kids <laughs> be able to ask a machine to tell them jokes. But, um, you know, the kids don't have smartphones, at least at a certain age. And, um, you know, so there is that use case where kind of having an ambient device that's available to anybody in the home, whether or not they have a personal device, is, is a use case that isn't addressed by Apple's current strategy. Um, but yeah, just the fact that it's always there. I, I've talked to quite a few people who actually leave their smartphone in the other room or in a purse or, or somewhere else right. other than right with them. And so, you know, the use case of pulling a phone out of your pocket only works if it's actually in your pocket. And if you've got your hands covered in flour or some other goo or something like that while you're cooking, then again, having an ambient device that just can listen and respond in a totally hands-free way and actually understands what you're saying is, is really quite compelling. And so I agree. I think at some point Apple's probably going to have to get into this market just to solve that particular use case. They will have an advantage, as Google does, in that the capability will be on other devices too. And so it can uh, you know, learn about you over time and, and potentially respond to you in a very personalized and customized way, no matter where you are, because you'll have the same capability while you're out and about. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, on paper, certainly, and I haven't obviously tested it yet, but the home device looks really well positioned. I think, you know, taps into the Google services that people already use. The price is $50 less than the list price for Echo. The whole home stuff that they thought about is quite clever. The integration with things like Chromecast so that you can yeah. make a request on uh, on the home that then plays video through a Chromecast on the TV. There's a lot of good stuff there. I think the biggest disadvantages they're going to have versus Echo is they're not Amazon, so they don't have access to the front page, the largest e-commerce site in the world. That's not to be underestimated. Uh, and the other one is trust. And it was interesting that privacy and such never really was mentioned at the Google event this week, even though that's one of the big concerns that people always have about Google. There is a mute mic button, so you can basically turn it off so it's not always listening. Um, but that was the only concession to the fact that people might be concerned about this. And that may well be Google just didn't want to raise an issue um, in people's minds. But, um, you know, they never talked about privacy. They never talked about how the data would be used. They never talked about, you know, there was very little about that. There was a little stuff, I think, in some of the interviews about how um, the data all stays. Uh, it never sends anything unless you actually say, okay, Google, and then it only sends what you say. But um, you know, this is a device that's literally listening to everything that's going on in your home. And <laughs> yeah. I think that's going to be much more of a concern for a Google than for an Amazon. Yeah, I agree. Any last thoughts on the home before we wrap up? No, I, no, I, you know, I'm finding myself closer and closer to the point where I think one of these would be neat to have. And so yeah. I, I think, uh, I, I think more integration with the home, I think is smart home technology also 
becomes more ubiquitous, these things are going to be a lot more important. Being able to turn on light switches, you know, um, change the temperature in the house just by, you know, talking to one of these ambient devices. I, I think there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of value in that, but, but that smart home stuff has got a long way to go. And so, yeah, yeah. so yeah, I mean, in five years I could picture, you know, a lot of people having one of these, but I think it's going to be the cutting edge people that have it in the next two to three. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, in the interest of time, we're going to wrap up there. There's obviously some additional stuff that we could have talked about, including the Daydream View and uh, Chromecast Ultra and Google Wi-Fi. Perhaps we'll talk about that next week uh, as one of our segments on, on our next episode. But thank you for joining us. I think our voices may have been a little deeper than usual this morning. We're recording first thing in the morning, uh, which we don't usually do. So, uh, and I'm, I'm in a hotel room, so hopefully there isn't too much of a hum from from the, the various uh, equipment and things here in the hotel room. But thanks for joining us as always. Uh, we look forward to your feedback and look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.